I don't want people to know about my vendor. I like them, but you don't leave comment and star ratings because you'd rather them be unpopular. I'm John Manis, investor at Basis at Ventures, and this is Future Proof. For episode nine, we're digging into procurement and manufacturing to learn about how trillions of dollars of manufacturing inputs, from raw steel to nuts and bolts, are bought by factories to produce the products that we all know and love. Plenty of challenges for founders to tackle here, so let's dive in. All right, welcome, Paul. We're so lucky to have you today. Paul Hanna is a procurement manager at a California-based 150-person manufacturing company. They make parts for some of the coolest and fastest-growing companies out there, Blue Origin, SpaceX, you name it. Paul, leave it to you. Give a quick intro. Hey, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's right. I work for a California-based manufacturing company. They've been around for well over 50 years. We make pressure vessels and a lot of aerospace parts. We'll make parts anywhere from a few inches in diameter up to 80 feet long. So help, help, a lot of our listeners aren't as familiar with manufacturing. Help position your company amidst the broader landscape. I think a lot of people think Ford factory, building cars. You would consider us what's referred to as a job shop. We're making products for customers per their drawings. It could be a one-off part that's made once and never again, or it could be something that's recurring. On a contractual basis, most machine shops and fab shops are companies that take products for R&D. And so are there different kinds of machine shops, different specialties? What does that look like? There's just so many different ways to make different parts. We're a CNC shop and we're a fab shop, which is like a weld shop. Between the two, we can do quite a bit, but in, in our industry, companies that specialize in sheet metal parts, they'll get into making chassis and that you're dealing with a lot of press brakes and laser cutters, water jet. Most CNC shops tend to stay CNC and, and you won't find them offering both weldments and sheet metal parts while also doing CNC parts. The, the type of equipment they utilize can be pretty pricey. So you see companies tend to go in one direction. I see. And so you're working in most cases with companies that are larger, maybe that have some in-house manufacturing capabilities, um, but maybe they don't have the capability for something specialized they need to have done. Or you mentioned prototyping. Prototyping is an interesting case. What would cause a company to prototype with you and not use their own internal machines for manufacturing? Yeah, I think a lot of larger companies that spend a lot of money on R&D generally don't build parts in-house. It's just a lot easier for them. Your engineer who's designing and modeling the part probably isn't the guy who's going to do the cam and machine the part and buy the material as raw stock material. It's just a lot easier for them to rely on a company to make those parts for them and deliver them on time. Most companies wouldn't do CNC in-house unless it's your core business. Totally. We see that in technology as well, even thinking about outsourcing in APIs, for example, what do you use a third party for? Even though you have software engineers in-house, it's not your core business. It makes more sense to outsource it, work with somebody who's specialized right. in whatever that particular problem space is. Paul, you mentioned that you are a procurement manager. What is a procurement manager in a manufacturing context? In manufacturing, procurement is very different than general procurement. We start off by analyzing our customers' requests for quotes. They'll submit drawings sometimes the models, the step files. 
But stage one is looking at these drawings and analyzing all the costs associated to making these. You're going to determine material, you're going to determine labor. Is it being machined? Are there outside processes? Are these parts being anodized or do they have to go out for powder coating? It's not as straightforward as receiving a bill of material or a spreadsheet saying we need this quantity of this make and model of off the shelf parts. Everything's custom. There's a lot of analyzing involved and then go from there. We set up our customer's quotes. We analyze the drawings. We go out for material to uh, determine cost of material. Our foreman will get involved in determine what sort of labor is involved. Is it a weld mint? Is it just a machined part? Is it being turned on a lathe? Is it being milled? Is it three, four five access? And this assumes we have no history on a part. Once you have history on something and, and you've got it in your system, you, you can get all that information right off the bat. Are there any goods that you keep on hand at all times that might not be specific to a customer, but you're buying in bulk because you need it across many customers? That's a good question. For us in particular, we don't like to inventory, even if it's a repetitive part. We really like to put all of our material costs into the job itself. Now, when it comes to certain fasteners and hardware that we really don't care to associate costs to a particular job, it's more like an off-the-shelf part that we just keep reusing in-house. There are a lot of other companies who are similar to us that would. And in the cases where we do, it's for our annual contracts where we know we're going to need X amount per year for a particular uh, assembly and production. And we'll do just in time inventory where we'll replenish once a month or as often as we need. So we're not sitting around waiting for material. I assume that's the same way that things would work for consumables then, like in a welding context, if you're buying inputs, you would be buying those on a just-in-time basis. Yeah. When it comes to tooling in a CNC business, you're going to be buying a lot of end mills. You're going through those drill bits very often, and sometimes you need them to be very specific or even customized. I mean, you need a certain tooling for a certain job, but yeah, when it comes to consumables, that's actually a full-time position at our company. We have what's called the tool crib that stays fully stocked and gets replenished by an individual as quantities are going down. And I'm sure the inventory systems at, at a point where he receives alerts when there's a particular part number that is low and needs to re replenish basic inventory methodologies to maintain the off the shelf day-to-day stuff that we use. So one of the topics I wanted to get into dovetails really well with this is technology and how technology is changing both manufacturing, but also procurement more specifically. I think a lot about consumables it reminds me a lot of Dollar Shave Club. Basically any product that's out there from a consumer context, there's a way to subscribe and have regular delivery or fulfillment of that product. But yeah. we haven't really seen autonomous procurement and subscriptions eat into manufacturing in any meaningful way. Why do you think that is? And do you think in the future there's a potential for some of these more recurring orders to just happen autonomously without human intervention? Yeah, actually it's happening right now in the fasteners business. We go through a lot of fasteners. I'm talking nuts, bolts, screws, small parts that per unit costs aren't so significant and you would trust another company to replenish for you. So what these fastener companies are doing is they're setting up inventory bins at their customers' locations. And these bins are weighted sensors in direct communication with the fastener supplier who monitors their customer stock levels at all times. 
and they do weekly replenishments and they fill the bins themselves and they just bill the customer. This is quite huge. They're, for a manufacturer goes through millions and millions of nuts, bolts, and screws every month. So I could see that happening across the board in different categories. You don't want to stall a project because you don't have enough of the cheapest part involved in it. Yeah, that would be pretty silly. How many times have we been caught with that situation in our own lives? I can think of so many home improvement projects that have been put on hold for (laughs) weeks on end because a particular screw that I bought at Home Depot wasn't the right size or I bought six instead of eight. Like it's Yeah. Now imagine that on, on a production level where it's time sensitive and Every day you're over the estimated lead time, you're being charged or whatever your contract may contain. Other than that, you've got companies like McMaster that are pretty impressive. I consider them the Amazon of industry. It's always amazing when I talk to people in manufacturing, particularly uh, companies that want to compete with McMaster. Nobody's coy about saying we, we want to be like the McMaster car of X. Right. It's very interesting because in, in the tech industry, all the time we'll hear companies saying, I want to be the plaid of X, or I want to be the stripe of Y or the Twilio of Z. But you don't really hear that a lot in a lot of traditional industries, but it seems like everybody in manufacturing, people just want to be a McMaster car. It's amazing. With me, for example, where I can buy from McMaster, I will. Are they a little bit more expensive? Yeah. Am I going to get my parts literally the next day? Yes. And then what's really interesting is in procurement in estimating and quoting, you go per the bomb, per the drawing. A lot of them will be generic and tell you a part and size that you would need. So you can just get any manufacturer or an equivalent if they're being specific. But in the last couple of years, a lot of the bill of materials will say a specific McMaster part. So you have to go per the bomb. So even if you could find that same part cheaper, it doesn't matter. You go per the bomb. I see a lot of McMaster on our customers bill of materials, but It's interesting how that has been established. The reason why McMaster offers step models for every part they sell is so that engineers can just drag and drop them into their CAD files as they're designing. And then it assigns it to the bill material when they establish the drawing. That's a McMaster off the shelf part. Yeah, there's actually a start in Silicon Valley that's effectively trying to do just that, where they're starting from the design software itself and then trying to build a plugin basically that allows automatic procurement and estimation around parts, a yeah. la exactly what you're describing with McMaster. Part. We should discuss this a little further because I find it really interesting. For example, in SolidWorks or Fusion 360, as an engineer is designing a part, they can, within their, their CAD software, order the part right then and there. And it'll link them to geometry or uh, fictive or... Um, One of these upload your step models and get your parts for quick prototyping. That's all cool. I'm not saying people aren't doing it this way, but the traditional format of procurement from these larger companies, it's a very different division than the engineer who's working in the CAD file and designing the part itself. I think over time, these things can evolve in a way that you might find most companies adopting the idea of we're we're purchasing directly from a CAD file as we're designing the part. But I think there's more steps to it than that. And then when it comes to procurement, they're communicating with engineering, but it takes time to go from design to you're ready to purchase. But I find these companies like Zeometry and Fictive, where you can go on their websites, upload your models, select a few parameters and 
and it'll output a price for you open in that they're not necessarily the ones who are going to manufacture the part for you. They have a whole network. They're playing the role of a marketplace. They have a whole network of manufacturers that they outsource the parts to, but in the end it goes to them. They do the CMM inspections on the parts. They get the, the reporting and all the documentation and get it to the end users. There's value in that, but also there's a lot of companies tend to go out for bid on their parts and attract the best price. And it tends to be the, the direct manufacturer. Yeah. We see this across industries. We've looked at this in construction. We've looked at this in real estate from a services procurement standpoint. And at least in the context of manufacturing, what we've seen is that a lot of larger manufacturers uh, that manufacture our parts are looking to develop out an e-commerce web presence and compete with folks like McMaster Car, not with the purpose of moving their high volume transactions to the internet, but for the purpose of lead generation for those larger volume contracts, alert somebody like yourself that a particular manufacturer makes eight out of the 10 parts that are needed for a particular build. And they buy the, and you buy, or someone else buys those eight parts off an e-commerce site for the purpose of a prototype, that person is then more likely to go to that manufacturer to buy those goods at scale. And then they, they can go through a traditional sales process with a traditional sales agent inside the company who will build that in a bespoke way. But I think what I've heard is that a lot of the complexity emerges around product recommendations because the catalogs are so big and there's so many SKUs for a lot of these parts. Not everybody has McMaster level organization and metadata around their product catalog it becomes very difficult to know which manufacturers have which parts and which goods. And a lot of times that means that a manufacturer is losing out on opportunities to upsell because they just aren't aware or the customer is not aware that they can buy a particular part for their prototype and might go elsewhere. You're probably very familiar with ThomasNet, right? Tell Um, listeners though, who might not know as much about this. Yeah, it's really a directory to find manufacturers. I think they've done a really good job. If I need a CNC shop that does five axis, or there's a particular feature in a part that we're making that needs to be done via uh, EDM or some process that we're not fit for and we need to outsource it. ThomasNet is where I go to find more vendors. They've done a good job at breaking down the process type. You type in a specific process and it'll give you every vendor that offers anodizing or powder coating. Out of curiosity, do they have any ratings or way to judge quality of the folks that are listed on the platform? That's a good question. It has never evolved to take on that functionality, like almost an industrial Yelp. B2B is very different than B2C. I don't want people to know about my vendor. I like them, but it's like my little secret. You don't want to share your vendors or leave comments and star ratings because you'd rather them be unpopular. (laughs) It's not necessarily intuitive to think that way, but it makes a lot of sense. And maybe for that reason, there's a lot of companies out there that have tried to do more of the Yelp style reviews for B2B commerce. But thinking from that perspective, it's not hard to see why a lot of those platforms might not have as much traction as they hope. Yeah. And Thomas now has this whole models catalog which can be helpful for engineers to import into their assemblies or drawings, into their CAD files. But I feel like McMaster has done it really well. Maybe one question just to back up a little bit from this um, and give a little bit of perspective to potential founders. What are your biggest challenges day-to-day with procurement? Not just challenges, but also what you're optimizing for. I'm sure 
cost is a piece of that. But as you mentioned, in some cases, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, man. We're always putting out fires. For example, in the last 30 days, the cost of steel has gone up 30%. And you're giving estimates to your customers two months ago. It took two months to receive the purchase order. Now your cost is 30% higher on material. So price fluctuations on material, that happens a lot in this industry. Lead times, when you depend on outside vendors, you've got to depend on all of your outside processes, whether some other manufacturing steps or the raw material itself. A lot of times we work off of forgings and castings. And so lead times, it seems like no one meets their lead times. Your customer's due date is quite critical. Meeting deadlines, while depending on all the outside dependencies, can be a bottleneck. And we talked about cost, but is cost something that you obsess over on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. We always go out to more than one vendor. We want vendors to bid against each other. It's important for that. So let's take an assembly that we're manufacturing, or at least in the quoting stage, and we need to build 100 over the course of a year, we want to get the best price on every line item involved in the bill of material. If there's any outside processes, we want to get the best price. Obviously, quality, meeting deadlines, that's the default. We're not going to sacrifice that for a little savings. But if your procurement division is strong and you're doing things the right way, you've got multiple vendors bidding against your requirements. But you, there, there's a balance because you don't want to uh, exhaust your vendors either. And we've done that. Many companies have done that. A lot of times you're getting production costs and it's not something that you are ready to execute on, but you still need pricing. So you go to all your vendors and a lot of times that quote on average, 10% of quotes turn into actual jobs. So nine out of 10 times when we need something quoted and there's multiple vendors involved, Nine out of 10 times, they're going to quote us and take the effort in doing so and not receive a purchase order. So you have to be careful and you can't just blast out and ask everyone to quote this and go with the best price. But you also want more than one vendor involved to know that you're getting a good rate, right? So there's a balance uh, between it, but it is easy to exhaust your vendors if you're sending too many RFQs and not sending back purchase orders with them. We talked a lot about some of the technological advances that you've seen in your work in the last couple of years. What do you think are some of the biggest opportunities specifically within procurement? When I'm working in Fusion 360 or SolidWorks and putting together an assembly, the idea of following a particular framework where as you bring in new parts into this design, you're doing it correctly and identifying the material type and you're pulling from a library of parts. And those parts are actually off the shelf parts, real parts. See, sometimes engineers will design things that aren't necessarily economical or even available. What really good engineers who have years of experience design according to what's most economical. And that takes time to learn. You're confined within off the shelf products. But if you follow a particular framework and you create this bill of material, and from there, that bill of material is fully identified and cross referenced in, with an API and say McMaster. And as you're making these parts, as you're selecting them, you're seeing pricing and, you, and while in the middle of a design, you're like, ah, I'm not going to use this part. I'm going to bring this part in because it's cheaper. And here, this design has to be within this cost. So it'll be like real time inventory 
while in the design phase. And so long as you follow that framework where you can't just pull random parts, the software will identify the most feasible uh, or cost-effective methodology of producing this part. Is it going to be a casting? Is it going to be forged? Is it going to be machined? Is it something that you can actually just 3D print? Does it have to have a certain hardness or temperature? And then at the final point, whether you want to make one or 10 or a thousand of these units, the bill of material is ready to go and it can all be acquired from XYZ distribution. I could see something like that. We spent a little bit of time talking about autonomous procurement earlier and opportunities to take the human out of the loop or at a minimum assist the human in the process of procurement, particularly as it relates to goods that have a, a bit of a rhythm to them or a little bit more predictable in terms of usage. Is that something that you think is real and holds water? And how do you expect those kinds of technologies to start to scale within industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be more human assisted rather than getting rid of the human altogether. It's already there, really. If you look at how you would gather your bill of materials and determine what inventory you needed 10 years ago versus now, it's already very different. That's assuming companies are utilizing what's out there. There's quite a gap between what's out there and how things are being done. People are quite old school and there's a lot of red tape involved. A lot of times when they discover something that works for them, they're not so interested in, in evolving. You have to be very convincing and show them how much you'll save over this amount of time if you did it this way versus that way. What's the most novel thing you all have adopted recently from a technology perspective? We migrated to a new MRP system. <laughs> nice. Congratulations and, on that. Yeah, it's funny. It, this reminds me of when Microsoft went from XP to Windows 7 and everyone's heads explode and it's hard changing to a new ERP system or MRP system when you've become so dependent on doing things a certain way. So it's been a challenge. We got into a system that is, I would say, more idealistic for a high volume production company, probably not the best for a job shop. You got to get everyone on the same page, right? The machinists, the foremen, the managers, procurement, accounting, HR, it's just a matter of getting everyone trained. So that's very challenging. Yeah. I, I always feel like Oracle, SAP, and some of the folks that are specialized within specific industries that do this ERP work should give trophies to everybody inside of companies when they finish an ERP or MRP migration. It's yeah. like the worst stories that you hear for this. It's not my life is way easier. It's just the battles that people have gone through over the course of adoption is just, it's crazy. Every time um, I've ever asked someone, how do you feel about your MRP system or ERP system? No one's ever just come out and said, oh man, I like Yeah, never. It's like going yeah. to the dentist. I don't think there's a perfect solution out there. For example, the MRP system we're utilizing, it's just compounded functionality over time. And it looked as though someone was building it for themselves. It's this fine balance between changing what you do to fit the MRP system or changing the MRP system to fit what you do. We're in that scenario right now. It's been about a month now and we're almost fully migrated, but we're still using both systems. Wow. All right, Paul. So in closing, what advice do you have for founders that are looking to sell into a machine shop or a factory? What should founders not overlook? I feel like I always compare it to the wild west, but it's something to be respected. These, a lot of times are generational companies. If they've made it this far, they've obviously made adjustments over the years and 
at the end of the day, it really comes down to what service or solution you're offering. And you really have to think from their perspective, why do I want to implement this? How is it going to help my company? How long is it going to take for that money to come back? Manufacturers spend money if you can prove that it'll pay off in X amount of time. I completely agree. I think at the end of the day, people complicate startups, but are you delivering a meaningful value proposition? Are you approaching the problem humbly? Do you have hustle as a founder to figure it out? That's true in manufacturing like any other space. But thank you so much, Paul. This has been absolutely fascinating. I think our listeners really have a treat here in being able to learn not just about the inner workings of manufacturing, but procurement specifically, a space that is seeing a lot of innovation and hopefully a lot more over the coming years. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Truly fascinating discussion today about the future of procurement and manufacturing, and how the next generation of hardware design tools will be even more tightly connected to the purchasing process, with greater intelligence, increasing collaboration between engineering and procurement teams. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll be posting more future-proof episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And if you're hungry for more BSV research, check it all out at basisset.ventures. Ventures.